Welcome to the May 15th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is in 2 Kings 22 and 23 and John chapter 4. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Okay, 2 Kings 22. Now we come to the all-time, to my all-time favorite king over the southern nation of Judah. His name is Josiah, King Josiah. And while there are only three legitimate kings of Judah to follow him before Judah fell with the fourth man installed by the king of Babylon, Josiah's reign was characterized by spiritual renewal and revival. So let's read about him. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, uh, the daughter of Adiah. Uh, she was from Bozkath. Uh, he did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or the left. So as we're introduced to Josiah, we read in verses 3 through 7 that he oversaw repairs made to the Jerusalem temple. It had deteriorated over time, and also King Manasseh, who was Josiah's grandfather, had filled the Jerusalem temple with pagan altars and objects of pagan worship. It needed to be cleansed before it could once again be used to worship the God of heaven in it. Well, as the temple was being repaired, something was discovered in a back room or closet or someplace where it, it had been collecting dust. Listen to 2 Kings 22, verse 8. The high priest, Hilkiah, told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. So did you get that? The book of the law was found. The books that Moses wrote, we might even say the Bible has been found. The fact that this was such a surprise makes us think that the kings of Judah and the people of Israel had merely been winging it. They were not reading the Bible because they did not have it. But now they've got it. So what's going to happen now that someone has discovered the Bible? Look at 2 Kings 22 verses 10 and 11. Then the court secretary, Shaphan, took, uh, told the king, The priest Hilkiah has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So after hearing the Bible read to him, King Josiah realized that he and his people had violated so much of it. But the book of the law also said that disobedience would be met with God's discipline and judgment. So King Josiah sent his trusted leaders to inquire of the Lord to see what the Lord thought about all of this. Listen to verse 13. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah about the words of this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. Well, next we read that these men went to a prophetess named Huldah. Listen to what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says about this. 
Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The fact that the king's five officers sought out the prophetess Huldah suggests that she was highly regarded for her prophetic gift. Other prophets also lived in and around Jerusalem at this time, including Jeremiah and Zephaniah and perhaps Nahum and Habakkuk, all of which, and, and I'm adding this, all of which wrote books in the Old Testament. Back to quoting the Bible Knowledge Commentary, but the five consulted Huldah for reasons unexplained, unquote. So we don't know why they went to this prophetess. They had men who were uh, going to or had already written books that would be included in the Old Testament scriptures, but they went to Huldah. Essentially, these men heard Huldah say that God was justifiably angry and his wrath would not be quenched. The sins of Judah had become so grievous and had lasted for so long that God's patience had run out. Judah was going into captivity. Yet there were words of grace in what she said. As she spoke on behalf of the Lord, she told the men that Josiah's response to the reading of the scripture had caught heaven's attention. Because he was broken over Judah's sins, because he tore his clothes and wept before the Lord, God was going to extend an extra measure of grace to him. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 20. Therefore, I will indeed gather you and your ancestors, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm bringing on this place. Then they, the ones that were listening to the prophetess, went and reported to the king. So as we read these words, I don't know about you, but my mind was drawn back to similar words that were said to King Hezekiah. Maybe you remembered those. Yet Hezekiah did nothing about it. He was told that there would be judgment coming, but he would go to his grave in peace and he would not see what would happen to his descendants. And he merely expressed his gratitude that the tragedy wouldn't happen in his lifetime. Now that Josiah has heard of God's wrath and the coming judgment, will he simply express gratitude that he won't have to see it? Or will he do whatever he can to lead the people in a time of spiritual renewal so that God's wrath might be appeased and judgment might be pushed farther and farther into the future? The next chapter gives us the answer. Okay, 2 Kings 23. As uh, 2 Kings 23 opens, we observe Josiah taking responsibility. He's leading by example. He calls for a public meeting and declares his allegiance to the Lord. He vows to obey the Lord completely. What is implied is that the people would follow his example of their own will and not by any forced measures. Listen to verses 1 through 3. So the king sent messengers, and they gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. 
Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. All the people agreed to the covenant. So all the people agreed with him. They vowed to comply with the covenant to obey God completely. But friend, words and good intentions are not good enough. Josiah needed to strike while the iron was hot. The people were open to the change that spiritual renewal required, so he got busy. In verses 4, uh, verses four through 20, we read of uh, a man on a mission. He's destroying everything, everything that did not align with God's word. We can only assume that the people of Judah observed with approval because there seems to have been no place that was untouched by his reforms. Again, remember why Josiah is doing this. It's because he knows that Judah has been in violation of God's word, and so God is angry. Judgment is coming. Josiah is simply doing the things that might push the judgment off a bit. Friends, this is why I have dedicated my ministry to focusing on Scripture. The people in Josiah's day didn't have the Scripture until it was found. For the people in our day, the Scripture is hidden in plain sight. We have more Bibles than we know what to do with, but a large portion of Christians don't spend sufficient time reading, studying, and obeying God's Word. So I want to be just one more voice that gets the word to people so that we can know what God has required and then obey it. Well, Josiah didn't simply get rid of stuff. He also restarted some things that had been forgotten. One thing that the people of Judah hadn't done in years many, many, many years, was observe the Passover, the meal that reminded the Israelites of how God had saved them from Egyptian slavery. So listen to 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. The king commanded all the people, Observe the Passover of the Lord your God as written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. So we're talking about the fact that it has been hundreds and hundreds of years since the Passover has been observed. Well, then the writer of 2 Kings tells us of yet one more thing that Josiah did to purge the land of anything that was in violation of God's word. And then we read the powerful words of verse 25. Listen to this. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, according to all the law of Moses, and no one like him arose after him. My goodness, if, if only we could live in such a way that those words could be said of us. Can I read that again? Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, according to all the law of Moses. And no one like him arose after him. 
This is someone who is dedicated to the Lord, not just outwardly. He is passionate about obeying the Lord, knowing what God has said and doing it. Honestly, the Christian life is, at least in principle, it is relatively simple. It's simply this. Find out what God has said in his word and do it. You know, rightly apply, rightly understand what God has said in his word. Make sure that you are applying it in the right way and then just do it. So King Josiah did a thorough job of following the Lord and eradicating from Judah what was offensive to the Lord. He has also cleansed and revamped the temple and reinstituted the Passover. Now the question becomes, did his actions appease God's wrath? Did his actions push judgment forward at least a little bit? Just read the next few verses. Listen to 2 Kings 23, verses 26 and 27. In spite of all that, in spite of all that Josiah did, in spite of all that, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his intense burning anger, which burned against Judah because of all of the affronts with which Manasseh had angered him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my presence, just as I have removed Israel. I will reject this city, Jerusalem, that I have chosen, and the temple about which I said my name will be there. So all that Josiah had accomplished did not change the circumstances. Judah was still found uh, for judgment. It was still bound for judgment and would be sent off to captivity. Well, there's a couple of biblical principles that I see in this text. First, when we sin and those sins have consequences... We can seek God's forgiveness and move into a time of refreshing and renewal, but it may not stop the consequences. For instance, if a parent lived their life for themselves and didn't take their faith in God seriously, they may at a later time seek God's forgiveness and experience personal revival, but their child may still grow up, leave the parent, and reject any relationship with the Lord. This is why, even though Josiah's reforms didn't stop the consequences, they at least helped the people under his reign to experience God's favor for a season, even though Judah was still doomed for judgment. Friend, we can always be forgiven by God, but some sins are going to bring consequences regardless of what we do. That's why we should be resolute in obeying God's word. A second biblical principle that I see in this text is this. God sometimes sees us as a group, not as individuals. Sometimes individuals within a group can live right but they will experience the consequences of someone else's sin. Imagine that you're on a bus. Unknown to you, the driver's been drinking and uh, he's impaired. In his drunken state, as you sit in your seat, unaware of his condition, he accidentally veers off the road and the bus plunges to the valley floor below. You weren't guilty of sin. He was the sinner but you experienced the consequences. 
Friend, it's not only in our best interest to be resolute in our love for the love for and obedience to the Lord. It's also in the best interest of those we love, because if our sins bring on consequences, they may also harm others. Now, Josiah realized that if he were to uh, live an ungodly life, it would create an ungodly atmosphere, and there would be many people that would not be drawn to the Lord because their leader was not being drawn to the Lord. And so it is so essential for us in our leadership roles, whether we're in leadership in a church or whether we are a parent or we are in some leadership at work or school or wherever else, that we take our walk with the Lord seriously because we just never know how our pursuit of the Lord or lack thereof or falling off into sin will bring rewards or consequences on those that we love most, those that are the closest to us. The story of Josiah comes to an end when he marches his army up to the Euphrates River to confront Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Uh, we're told that Necho saw Josiah and killed him. King Josiah's body is taken back to Jerusalem and buried. Listen to verse 30. Then the common people took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in place of his father. Verses 31 through 33 tell us that Jehoahaz was evil and only reigned for three months in Jerusalem. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him and imposed a fine upon the nation of Judah. Listen to verses 34 and 36. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, uh, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and he changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz uh, and went to Egypt, and he died there. Verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim... Um, we, we know from Scripture, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And now we only have one legitimate king of Judah left. His name is Jehoiachin, and a man who was placed on the throne by a foreign power, by Babylon, his name is going to be Zedekiah. That's it. And then Judah is going to be taken into captivity. John chapter 4. In verses uh, 1 through 42, we come to a very familiar story. In it, we meet the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, there's so much in here that's worthy of serious reflection, but time doesn't allow us to, uh, to dig into all of that, so let's just hit a few of the high points. Uh, we're led to believe that Jesus traveled north toward Galilee because the Pharisees had heard that his disciples were baptizing more than John the baptizer and his disciples. So it seems that rather than allow the Pharisees to create a rift in the two groups, Jesus traveled with his disciples to another place. Listen to verses 4 through 6. He had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. That's important. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. 
there are some fascinating things that these previous verses tell us. They tell us that Jesus was worn out, which clearly points to the fact that he was living his life as fully human because God never gets worn out. They also tell us that he had to travel through Samaria. According to the Jews in the first century, that wasn't true. They regularly crossed the Jordan River uh, and and traveled north or south on the east side and then crossed the Jordan River again to to avoid going through Samaria. They never needed to go through Samaria. They despised the people there and uh, never wanted to go into their land. But the words, he had to travel through Samaria, points to the fact that Jesus was not so much focused on uh, the opinions of the Jews. He didn't kind of He didn't care about that. It tells us that he was being led by the Father. The Lord had determined to save many people in the Samaritan town of Sychar, so Jesus had to go to that land in order to speak with them, particularly with a lady at the well of Jacob. Well, one of the many principles we observe in this text is that the gospel trumps racism. Christians are to be about the the business of sharing the good news of the gospel with anyone, regardless of their gender, nationality, sin preference, or any other way that they may be different from us. Jesus' lack of racism was clearly noted by the Samaritan woman. Men did not value women, and yet Jesus was talking to her. Jews did not value Samaritans, and yet Jesus was talking to her. People who were godly didn't talk to people who were sinners, especially adulterers, and yet Jesus was talking to her. She picked up on this in verse 9 when she said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Clearly, Jesus is demonstrating for us on the pages of Scripture uh, that we are to look down on no one. Every single person is broken and messed up to one extent or another, including us. So the heart of someone who has been forgiven by the Lord should reach out to others, no matter who they are or what they've done, with the message that they, too, can enter into a soul-satisfying relationship with the Lord. Well, as we listen to the back and forth of this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we see that he is speaking spiritual truths, but he's doing so in a way that captures her interest. She's not bored with Jesus He's interesting. She finds him intriguing, even if she does not really understand some of the things that he's saying. But the gospel presentation must address sin. We can't merely talk about the blessings of coming into a relationship with the Lord. We must address how utterly offensive sin is to God, often demonstrated in how guilty a person feels over what they've done. Jesus does this. Listen to verses 16 through 19. He said this, Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have answered correctly. Uh, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The big sin in her life that she knew about and that probably tormented her so that she didn't want to dwell on it was that she was an adulterer. 
In fact, this may explain why she was out drawing water at noon when the sun made being outside almost unbearable and when the other ladies were not there with her. She and everyone knew that she was an adulterer. So now that her sinfulness has been exposed and guilt was probably written on her face, what's the natural response of someone in that situation? They changed the subject. The very next verse, verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. She changed the subject. Conviction was was too hurtful for her. It was something that was too personal, and it was making her feel horribly uncomfortable, so she changed the subject. Yet the deed was done. She was experiencing conviction, so Jesus said a few more things and then presented himself to her as the Messiah. Listen to verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Well, Jesus' disciples came back as the woman left her water jar and went into Sychar to share the good news. I believe that she had been saved and she had to tell others about it. As she was in town, the disciples had brought food and encouraged Jesus to eat, but he said in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. In other words, the nourishment that fed his soul and kept him energized was doing what God had told him to do. He found such great joy in sharing the good news of the kingdom with any who would listen. In fact, he enjoyed it so much that he fasted unintentionally. It was so much fun to share the gospel with others, and and as they were trusting in the gospel, trusting in him, that he hadn't even noticed that he was hungry. (laughs) That was food for him. If you have ever shared the gospel with someone and they ask the Lord to save them, you know the happiness that Jesus was talking about. The people of Sychar raced out to the well and listened to Jesus. Eventually, many of them trusted in him too. This place that the Jewish disciples would have despised, Samaria, this this whole area that the Jewish disciples would have despised and wanted to avoid, had turned into a place where God's blessings were flowing I'm certain that they never forgot that day. Verse 43, After two days he left there for Galilee. So he made his way to Cana, uh, where he had performed his first miracle. And if you know where the Sea of Galilee is, it's about 10 miles due west of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Cana is. Listen to verses 46 and 47. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. So Capernaum is uh, a city that is roughly 10, 30, 11 o'clock. If you're looking at the Sea of Galilee and pretend that it's a clock, Capernaum is roughly 10, 30, 11 o'clock right there on the Sea of Galilee. And so there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum, so maybe you know, 12, 15 miles away, something like that. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. After after he had another desperate plea from uh, from this father, Jesus told him to go back home. His son was going to live. Listen to verse 50. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him, 
and departed. Ah, that's incredible. And as the father was heading home, his servants met him on the way, and they said that his son was much better and his fever was gone. And so the father inquired at what time, uh, you know, his son started getting better just so that he could understand, you know, when this happened. And their answer made it clear that it was about the same time that Jesus had said his son would live. From this, I see the joy of someone who reflects on answered prayer. They're not merely content that God answers prayer. They want to know the story. How did God answer? When did God answer? I'm telling you, recreating the story of how God graciously answers your prayers and my prayers can be a source of great happiness. Just listen to John 16, 24. Jesus said, Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. So prayer is intended as a means of happiness. So add to that happiness and try to rewrite the story down. You know, document it somewhere. Maybe it's just for you. Maybe you want to share it with someone else. But document the story so that you remember this and remember the specific details for years to come. Well, the father couldn't keep the story to himself. He told his family all about his encounter with Jesus. I'm sure he hugged his son and and everything was okay. And and John tells us toward the end of the chapter, so he himself believed along with his whole household. And it's just a chapter of God's grace, isn't it? It's a chapter of the gospel. It's a chapter of joy. It's a chapter of people who may have been looked down on. Um, This royal official may have been a Roman uh, citizen, and so the Jews would have looked down on him. The Samaritan woman certainly would have been looked down on by the Jews, but Jesus cared for them. He met their needs, and in that, God brought great joy and happiness to a lot of people. Friends, there's a lot of racism going on. There's a lot of hatred going on. There's a lot of stuff. Do not participate. Do not participate in that. God loves us so much, and he wants us to share that love with others. Do not participate in racism. Don't look down your nose at anyone. Consider it an opportunity to serve others and to express our love for the Lord by sacrificing for others to meet some needs and watch that when you focus on somebody else and not yourself, that it's actually a means of joy and happiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and thank you for the truth you have revealed to us in your word today. Help us to be like Josiah that loved you and loved others so much that that we do what we can to lead in a time of spiritual renewal in our family or in our church or anywhere else that we've got influence over others. Help us, Lord, to be like Jesus who looked beyond differences and looked beyond faults to meet people in their time of need. Help us to be just as ready, working for our own happiness by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and meeting the needs of others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Well, I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow. Thank you.